This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm Megan Gilmore, and I'm super glad to share this episode with you. This month, we are taking an international look at disability. Our guest is David Atra. David lives in Edmonton now, but he is originally from northern Ghana, and he researches how cultural understandings of disability impact policies and services for people with disabilities. When David was two, he contracted polio. He joined me to talk about how disability led to his education and how he sees cultural differences at work in approaches to disability accessibility. We also touch on why the question, what happened to you, may actually be a positive thing. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Megan. We were texting beforehand, and you mentioned that this was your first podcast. So just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of who you are and what you do. My name is David Achura, uh, originally from Ghana, and I'm a researcher and an analyst, and I do a lot of my research focusing on disability, especially in water and sanitation. What got you interested in disability? I have a disability at the age of two because of uh, polio infection. I walk around with a pair of braces and crutches. So that personal experience actually connects me so much to do a lot of research in the area of disability. And that also to kind of bring my own experience or my own perspective to the analysis on issues affecting people with disabilities across the world. What are some of your earliest memories of disability? Like you mentioned that you contracted polio when you were two. So do you remember the before that or do you just remember after? So I don't actually have a lot of memories before I had a polio infection. Even after the time I had a polio infection, I can't really remember so much about it. It after the infection that I can probably have some memories. And probably I was before I went for rehabilitation at the age of 11. From the age of 2 to the age of 11, yes, I did have some memories. I could remember wanting to age me, want to like play around the house, playing soccer, and I couldn't participate. And it's kind of like, I think I could remember one experience where they kind of invited me, and I was like, yeah, I can play, I can run around, you guys are run around. And it's like, no, no, you can, you can be the goalie. And I was like, oh, that sounds, that is, oh, I didn't know that I can be the goalie. I'm excited. It was the goalie, and I, they kicked the ball and hit me hard on the head. I was like, no, this is my last time of playing. This is my first and last uh, playing uh, soccer. You just described some of my early soccer experiences. So when, when I was a kid, I played summer soccer just for a couple years, just like rec league. I, I'm visually impaired. I have severe visual impairment. And I played, we had to play goalie for, I think, maybe one game of the season, maybe two. Everybody had to have a chance. And when it was my turn, my dad stood behind the net and told me which way I was supposed to move. Oh, that's so sweet. I was terrible. I had to break the news to him a few years ago that I actually didn't enjoy soccer because I was so bad. I could remember there were instances where my dad will encouraged me to do things that I probably don't like. I could remember at my earliest 
time in school, I didn't really like school because I was feeling very comfortable just being home with my some of my friends who were not going to school. But my dad didn't like it, so he will make sure he takes me to school in the morning. And but sometimes I'll find a way to excuse myself. I will, I, just, I will never say I don't like to go to school. I'll just pretend that I'm sick. But now I, when I look back, I'm really, really thankful, thankful that he pushed me to actually take school seriously. And clearly it's done you well because you researched disability at a fairly advanced level. And, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but you mentioned how you did rehabilitation when you were 11. What was that experience like for you? It was a painful experience. When I went in for the rehabilitation, my legs were already stiffened. I had to go through this painful process of strengthening my legs. I could remember that for the first six months, going through the orthopedic surgery to get my legs strengthened in a form that I can wear braces. That was very painful. I know my mom was there all the time with me, with my younger sister. And then when I went to the rehabilitation center to start the process, that was a little bit less painful, but it was also a new experience for me because I never left the house for such a long period. Uh, actually, I started my schooling at the rehabilitation. By that time, I was 11, going to 12, and part of the rehabilitation process, they assess you for your capacity to either go into a vocational skills training or go into a regular school. And so first, because of my age, I started the vocational skills. But one of the teachers noticed that I was a little bit advanced with numbers and the alphabets. And so she suggested that I should be moved from the rehabilitation group to that of those who are doing regular school. So I joined them, and I was far advanced uh, in terms of my knowledge. And I basically I skipped a number of classes uh, before I spent about eight to ten months in rehabilitation. And so when I left the rehabilitation center, I was in primary two. So the the vocational skill that my vocational my former vocational skill teacher, she wrote a note and added to my discharge document tell my dad that he should enroll me in school when you got home. So when I arrived home for two months, three months, I have to get myself familiarized with the terrain, to get myself familiarized with the, the working with the crutches, balancing myself. It was another process of rehabilitation, but nice. So for two months, and then for the third month, I, I could remember my dad. I think he was the social worker who came to visit me and... Noticed that there is that note in my discharge document. And so he asked my dad, is he in school? And my dad's like, no, he's not in school. I said, no, but there is a note that you should take him to school. Just to tell a little bit, my dad is illiterate. He doesn't know how to read. And more to the point, at that time, I, I was not even fluent in reading, so I didn't know how to read too. And my mom too doesn't know how to read. So unless the social worker open our uh, open any document to read and interpret for us to understand. So uh, he told the social worker that he was going to send me to school uh, the next uh, academic year. And so, yeah, the academy year came and he took me to school. Like I said earlier on, I didn't like it. That is a great story. Rehabilitation ends up being what led you to your education. And your education is partly what's led us to this conversation. I was just wondering if you could describe for people what your research focus was when you were in graduate school. 
I wanted to understand the perspectives of parents and local leaders, as well as social workers, their own perspective about disability in children and how that impacts their well-being. I was the program monitoring and evaluation officer for the Presbyterian Community Rehabilitation Program. As the monitoring and evaluation coordinator, my interest was to also write for a grant to support the program. The other part of it was to also support knowledge translation. So what I do is I research around policies about disability in different parts of the world, reading about what different countries are doing when it comes to the context of disability, and trying to translate that into the culture context and to also develop programs that fit into the local uh, culture and at the same time the, the context. And so trying to even doing that, I rather I didn't have a very well grips or well understanding of the local context. And so I wanted to like really explore that part. And I know it came to mind that if I want to pursue this in any other field, anthropology is the right field for me to go and pursue it. So I make the, the, the decision that I'm going to pursue anthropology and disability to just explore how the local knowledge intersects with my own understanding of disability and that of social workers' understanding of disability and the medical workers' understanding of disability. So in that, in my thesis, you, you probably notice that I've spent a lot of time talking about the local knowledge, how they view disability. Basically, they have, I would say, two ways of understanding disability. One is the modern way, which is the medical perspective that you all understand disability to be as uh, a result of a disease or accident or anything or abnormality from birth. And then they also have their own understanding of disability or disability. And that intersects with their worldview of life in general. In general, within the Buddhist tradition, there is the view is that we are all like spirits. We are not that full human beings and you are transitioning from here on earth to another world so that is a strong view they view children with disability from that angle in that angle they talk about as children that are very fragile and they are more likely to transit or to move to the next world or they were not prepared to arrive on this earth and by the arrive early that's very difficult to really even explain it to somebody who doesn't really have a glimpse of the culture context or the culture when you think back on your growing up, can you see how that understanding of disability was reflected and how people in the community responded to your disabilities? So if somebody who is born with a disability, the interpretation will vary from somebody who acquired a disability. And so for me, I acquired my disability. And so it's well understood that it was because of a disease that uh, caused me not to be able to, uh, to work anymore. But that has also excluded the fact that the whole community was seeing me as somebody with a disability in that little community. Then my chances of making making it in life was kind of limited. And that also attracted a negative attitude towards my family in general. And so where if, uh, I know my mom and dad told me stories of people telling them that you are just kind of wasting resources on this uh, child and he was probably not going to be somebody who can really make it in life in general. And if there are painful stories to listen to coming from your parents, they actually start telling me these stories when I was in the university. And so they know that, yes, I'm actually making it in life. I'm gradually getting to make it in life. Did you, did you ever sense as a kid that people were treating your family or viewing your family differently because of your disability? So I think when people tell me, like, you can't do this, you can't do this, I literally want to prove people wrong. People used to probably tell me that, hey, you can't do, uh, do this. 
Uh, you can probably work on the farm or you can t- maybe participate in harvesting. But I'll go to the harvesting. I try to perform well than children that are not disabled. I think that sense of wanting to prove people wrong actually have played a crucial role in my life. And I think in a way it's a positive way. But right now as an adult, I'm just trying to really balance that. I'll see myself where people are telling me some things and I just want to prove them wrong. I say, I don't have to be doing that for the rest of my life. When I was in high, in high school, I know one of my, even my head teacher, told me that, hey, David, you won't be able to pursue science, which was like a difficult uh, course. But so that literally made me to like select all my courses, my choices for like use science, 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 science. When he saw, was reviewing my um, select choices, he was like, I advise you that this is not um, an area that you are able to watch. You'll be able to pursue. And I was like, yes, but that is what I want to do. So I went and pursued my science, and I came out of flying college, and I went in and pursued nutrition, nutrition at my, my undergrad degree level, and also came out um, with a second-class upper. So I literally just want to prove people wrong when, they watch, when I hear anything they tell me with the way they can't. Um, yeah, that has been um, a, a, something that has been a little bit influenced in my life in a positive way. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people can can relate to. When you've studied how different cultures understand and view disability, and, and now you're living in Canada, I'm just wondering, is the, the Western North American understanding of disability, is it much different? from what you would have seen growing up? I would say, yes, there is vast difference. I think typically when I am in Ghana and I'm walking around or meet people for the first time, I don't really get people asking me what happened to me. I just pass through uh, the people. Just once in the blue moon, that I'll probably get a question. But when I arrived here, that was something that I kind of experienced where people just say, hey, what happened to you? What happened to you? I came in, the, I came in January. And you see, you you will you will understand why people ask me what happened. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, I wear a pair of braces, long braces and long uh, uh, armpit crotches. So the armpit crotches, you know, is very cool. people is a temporal crotches that people use here, especially when they have the slip and fall on the snow and they probably have a twisted ankle or some knee problem, then they use it temporarily and for rehabilitation. But I'm using it as permanent sort of uh, device. People started asking me, but I, I I didn't have this context. I didn't know that was the reason. I have to kind of like come out a way to explain myself because I'm not used to that answering those uh, questions. But as I stay here longer and I get to understand the context, uh, people really want to know your story. People really want to know what to tell, uh, what to share. And most of the times, so what I also notice is people want to share their stories, which is totally different from in Ghana. People really don't share their stories when it comes to things that are happening in their life, like the problem I have. So it's why I probably work in Ghana and nobody will ask me questions because nobody, even in the first row, want to share their own story. But I think what I've also learned here, anytime I tell people, okay, I had this uh, polio at the age of two and I've been using crutches for this for 25 years or more, uh, somebody will say, oh, um, I didn't know the story about that. I also I, I, I went hiking and I twisted my uh, uh, leg or ankle and I use crutches for this six months or use for two months or use for this. And there's always that relatable story that people share. And I think it's so nice to kind of like share your stories with people. And it's, for me, it's a point of making contact and having a conversation with somebody that I'm a stranger that I've never met before.
I know for some people, including myself, sometimes it can be really awkward when people ask me like, oh, what happened? Or like, why, like, why are your eyes that way? And it's really easy to get offended by that. But I feel like you're saying that question is actually, in, in a lot of cases, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to have a conversation with somebody and to share your story and to hear a bit more about theirs. Absolutely. That's how I have seen it. And it has been, I've like really found it very useful to integrating into Canadian culture and also learning from people and learning from people that I've no even encountered with. I probably that's my first time I encountering with them. I use the bars a lot and sometimes I'm in the bars and someone's like, What happened? You just had a conversation for five minutes or two uh, ten minutes. Is there anything that you think we in Canada could learn from Ghana, from where from where you're from about how to respond to disability? I think one of the things, like I mentioned, as I was working for this organization, translating knowledge from different uh, different countries that are in the field of disability and trying to make policies within that local community to support uh, the integration or the empowerment of people with disabilities, I literally realized that not, uh, work with disabled people organizations. They are literally all over the place. They almost every small town, you can have a group of people with disabilities get it together and they meet on regular basis to just uh, talk about their own personal issues also talk about how they can engage with their, their government or even service providers from different angles they find a sense of belonging they get empowered they get to know that they are not alone they belong to a wider group of people that also have similar experiences as them they are able to look at issues together as a group and issues that affect them, they are able to kind of look and strategize for solutions. I've been here, I've been uh, been to a number of disability uh, activities, but I would say I don't have a full understanding of the disability movement here or the disability arrangements here. Hmm, that's Yeah, that's really interesting, the differences between a more communal approach to disability than here we can be a little more individualistic in how we go about it. David, one of the reasons why I want to have you on is because I first heard about you because you do a lot of work around accessibility for washing and sanitation. For the past couple years, uh, because of COVID, we've been saying a lot, wash your hands, sanitize your hands. With your background, what's your first thought when you hear somebody saying, wash your hands? So I think for me, in my, my childhood experience around how washing was not uh, present, because I on the farm, I crawling around the house and not having even access to sufficient water. It wasn't something that I really practiced. And if I do wash my hands, I'm going to just basically walk on those hands again or just on the ground. And that was not pleasant. It actually even in a way makes me not even dine with my little my friends, because sometimes they find it filthy to kind of like, how do you work on the same hands and then eat with the same hands? So it was like um, a kind of um, stigma attitude. But what is more profound when I listen to hand washing, and it's not in a negative way, but the question has only been ringing in my mind, how many people with disability have access to uh, wash um, the facilities to wash hands. I was thinking about this. It. it kind of made me to remember or sometimes reflect about when you're walking to a building. And one of the things I 
try to do is how would I ever identify the washroom? It's very easy for me. Uh, but so I want to put this in context to every uh, di- the different people with disabilities, people that are totally blind and their experience. I thought I asked that question like if somebody is blind and you walk into a building, how do, how is going to identify the washroom unless somebody is there? If somebody is not there, how is going to find? How is the person going to find the sanitation facilities like the hand sanitizers? How is the person going to find them unless he asks somebody? I'm just asking these questions because I don't have the experience, but um, it's kind of very interesting to know how even the people with uh, visual impairment, how do they receive these messages? How are they maneuvering themselves around getting uh, to hand sanitize? So for pre-COVID, there are people that have struggled to even access these uh, hand washing facilities just because of their disability or because of certain situations beyond their control. And how will those people respond to the message? How are they even going to receive the message? I think the other thing uh, with COVID is kind of a little bit different is that people are just out to stay within their homes. And so it also just means that people don't really go out and they don't really have to do this. But if they do go out, that becomes what? Um, a necessity to find and wash your hands. But I must be honest with you, I have not really taken my time to do a more critical analysis of this. I did one uh, blog post or a research project right before COVID, but I still continue to kind of reflect about it, but I've never really taken my time to uh, do a piece on it anymore, apart from that particular uh, uh, article that I did in 2019. You are a polio survivor. I was just wondering if living through the polio epidemic has influenced the way that you have experienced the pandemic or how you think about living through a pandemic? Yeah, you obviously have an influence on my experience with the pandemic. And that, let me tell you a little bit, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I right after my, my graduate studies, I didn't land a job. And it was until just right in March of 2020 that I got a job as a cashier. I started my job first week training. And then this, the second week ending, beginning of, my, beginning of my third week, there was a lockdown in Canada. I just right jumped into the middle of the pandemic when it was like, like a lot of the demand for grocery stuff. So I worked through most of the time until until I think last year uh, when I quit that job. But as to the experience with living through a polo um, ep- epidemic, I think I would say it's a, a lesson learned in a better way, me having the polo and not being able to walk. And I noticed, I, like all my siblings right after me and even children within my community, all of them really got vaccinated against the polio right from birth. Taking vaccines has been, that has been like a huge success when it comes to the fight against uh, the polio epidemic. From that experience, when when the, uh, the pan- this pandemic, what I was thinking or hoping, uh, there was the news, okay, are you going to get a vaccine? That was going to like, help to go like in the fight because for me, that has actually helped in reducing polio or even eradicating polio. Now there's a few countries that have polio globally. That experience actually uh, had, like, speaks personally to me. And mm-hmm. I found it very relatable and kind of, I don't know how to put it, but it's one of those experiences we have and there's another sort of similar one happening. And you're kind of telling yourself, no, I don't think this is going to work. I don't like to go through that process again. I don't want to experience that again. Once the vaccines were there, I was so excited about it. I was like, okay, finally, you are probably uh, uh, thinking about how you can work. There is probably hopefully an end to this or there will be an end to it one day. 
Yeah, let's let's hope there's an end sooner rather than later. <laughs> David, I just have a couple questions left, but one of them is while we have you on, if there's any listeners who decide that they want to visit Ghana, what would you say are the places that they need to go visit? If you are somebody who is so much interested in history, I know this month is Black History Month. If you want to know about slave trade, the rules, I think there are the castles that are told there that Ghana was like a destination country for departure for most of the slaves in Africa. And it was a main route. And so those old structures are told there. You can go in and just do the tour you around, tell you what each uh, process or how each slave was going through until they kind of listen. There are the beaches that if you are in the capital city, you can uh, visit the beaches. There is uh, the culture market. Go there. You have a lot. If you love culture, uh, culture stuff, you can have a lot of colorful things, a lot of designs. If you tra- that is if you are in the southern part of the country. If you do travel to the northern part or the middle of the country, yes, you can stop by the Mali National Park. Uh, this like if you love animals, if you love to see nature, you will love to experience uh, African wildlife. So by there, you can have the elephants. You can have so many uh, other species that you can really. Have them. I think some of them probably might pop up at your residence where you stay if you happen to stay in the park. Your there are houses there. You can probably hang around there, and probably in the morning some of them may come around closer. Um, especially the elephants. If you do travel to the northern part, that is or the upper west, you have the old malls. Uh, you can the upper west region. You can have the old malls. You can go there, have uh, see the old malls there. The upper east, you have a number of side attractions. You can also visit. Uh, Dongo Hills is a very famous place, um, very interesting. They'll tell a whole lot of story about it. You have the crocodile pond. And I just learned like, to forget, like, yeah, there's a lot of food, different kind of dishes. Try them. Just a warning. Yeah, it's a little bit spicy if you don't, if you don't, if you don't like spicy stuff. Just tell your server you don't like spicy stuff and they'll, they will aware of it and get you something that you can try. Uh, specifically, we tried jollof. Everybody love it, and I, I crave for it all the time. If you want to try something traditional, you can go in for the fufu, which is more starchy, and probably have to eat it with your hands. So you can learn something eating with your hand. David, you are a podcast pro. You came on here to talk about, well, one thing to talk about was hand washing and sanitation. And then when you were talking about foods, you mentioned one that you eat just with your hands. It's like you do this every day. We have two questions that we like to ask every guest. And the first one is right now for you, what are some of the most isolating parts about living with a disability? At the very beginning, when I landed here for my first, uh, in my first year at university in graduate school, I think it was more lonely, even though I have friends that were here, but I was learning the culture. It was a little bit hard. But once managed to finish with that one year, I literally joined this family, and it's been an amazing experience. Until now, when I, I, I moved to Edmonton, it's very lonely, and I'm still trying to figure out community. And with the pandemic, things have been, like, really way off. Now, meeting somebody is so hard. You don't know how to shake whether to shake a hand to hug or to do anything you just very awkward that has been very lonely they like i go to grocery shop shopping almost every once a week that helps me to kind of go out to get to grocery store 
And basically, you just walk around the grocery store. And probably the only person you talk to is the cashier. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was working in um, a grocery store. So I actually didn't feel so much with it. So go, that was even the opposite. When people were asked to stay home, I was actually being asked to go to work. So I was um, I was right at the forefront. I was like working. I love talking to people. So it was an amazing experience. I would say I have that. I'm kind of like experiencing both sides of the effects of the pandemic. One, I have been out of the front line where I was kind of like talking to people, just so in that side of And then the other side of it is now I'm kind of sitting alone in a small room surrounded by four walls. And you've had to like move a lot to to different countries, to different cities, had to learn about new cultures. And, and that can be an isolating time for people. For you, what does good, meaningful connection look like? You know what? I would say, hey, just allow yourself open up to people and talk to them. Yeah, it's not everybody else will be welcoming. You once in a while, generally you meet somebody who is not welcoming. I've lived in different parts of Ghana, different cities, and 99% of the time, whilst I was in Ghana, I've been very like, open to people, just meet people talk, and you, I do have a very nice experience with them. Like was when I'm here, I do have meaningful connections. I go to church, and when I'm in the church, I meet people who just have a very nice connection with them. The other thing, like, like I said, try to be more positive, even in sometimes in trying to see things in a negative angle, sometimes help, but I don't think I really focus so much on that. If people keep on asking me what is wrong with me, what is wrong with me, I just like, this is a point of inviting me for a conversation. And I just have the conversations. Even though I know that certain times, like, you just answering the same question over and over, that can have a negative uh, if, uh, impact on somebody who has a disability, depending on their, their, their uh, disposition in life. But for me, I have been very positive with this conversation and trying to turn them into positive opportunities for me to, to engage with people. I think that has been a positive way. But I would say, in life, meaningful connections are very much... These conversations, they are temporal. Sometimes they lead to a huge future opportunities or future connections that you never even anticipated. Well, thanks so much, David. I feel like there's a lot of good wisdom in there. Thanks so much for having me, and I I really appreciate the time. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore. Nizreen Abdel-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to my guest, David Atra. And personal thanks to my friend, Callie Hogue, who used her disability to help women and girls in Brazil, and then came back to Canada and helped me during a hard time with mine. She is one of the many people who are the reason why I'm able to host this show. And just a quick note, this is our sixth episode, so we would love to hear your thoughts on the season so far. Please consider leaving a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll connect next time. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.